Amen. All right, now, if you were not at the retreat, we looked at three of my dear friends from the Word of God, right? In Proverbs, Solomon says, call wisdom an intimate friend. And so as Christians, we should have certain verses that are really, they just, they speak to our souls. They're like a friend in real life, right? Now, you got the reverse side, though, right? There are people who you should not be friends with. Right? You should have friends from the Word of God, but there's certain aspects, certain things that you do not want to have in your life. Think about things that we call respectable sins. What are some of the respectable sins? And when I say respectable, the so-called respectable sin. Right? No sin is respectable. But there's certain sins that someone doesn't feel as much of a sense that it dishonors the Lord as it really does. And so they kind of categorize it over here as, well, this wasn't as bad as committing adultery. This wasn't as bad as murder. It's not that bad. They minimize it. What are some respectable so-called sins that you guys can think of? Okay, lies. Gluttony. Pride. Yeah, gossip. Laziness. Yeah, laziness. Where does the Bible show laziness is not a respectable sin? Proverbs, and then you got First, Second Thessalonians. You've got people being put out of the church for what reason? Unwilling to work. Wow. You mean people get put out of the church for living in adultery, and people get put out of the church for being unwilling to work? No, that can't be right. See, the Bible, what a book. What a book. And you know what? Sometimes these so-called respectable sins are really going to keep you from rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoying Him and walking with Him in closeness as you would experience if these things were being taken more seriously in your life. And we saw my first message at the retreat. Is us rejoicing in Christ and His salvation, is that an important thing? You better believe it. Right? Jesus, again, He says, do not rejoice that the demons are cast out, but rejoice your names are written in the book of life. And so Satan wants us to have less of Christ than we can. And so I want to look at a specific respectable sin this morning. I want to identify it, and I want to tell you about it, and I want to call you to kill it, and I want to show you how you can kill it and where to put your eyes at, okay? Now, it's not a respectable sin that any of you all uh, mentioned. So you get one more chance. Anyone else have another so-called respectable sin? Covetousness? You think you know what it is? <laughs> all right, then don't say. <laughs> yeah, here, here let, me, let me try to personify and describe this sin. Okay, and, and you know, I, yeah, personification, trying to imagine a sin as an individual, I think that can help. That can help. So let's think of this. There's a friend that I once had when I was lost. He's a friend of mine. And even as a new believer, I continued to run into him. I mean, I tried to avoid him. He kissed, I just kept running into this person. He often would show up when I was in the midst of a difficult trial. What would he say to me? His messages always seemed to make me think about how bad I had it. How bad I had it. He'd not made me think about the Lord. Wouldn't make me think about the promises. I tried to cut off this relationship with this person. And you know what he did? He kept trying to message me. He kept trying to speak into my life. 
He kept finding my number. I blocked him. I got a new phone. He got a hold of me again. Constantly, he was whispering into my ear for me to feel sorry for myself. He was there in the midst of the trial, knocking on the door. Am I going to let him in? Am I going to let him impact my life? Or am I going to say no? And am I not going to give an opportunity for him? He always wanted me to feel like I had some unique trial and no one else could relate to what I was going through. And, you know, I'm the only one who can relate to what I'm going through. You know what happened? I finally got so fed up, I completely cut this person off. He's still alive. I almost spoke to him this morning. Well, I didn't. It was, it, was, it was a close call. He was there. He wanted to visit me for certain reasons this morning. I warned my own church about this person. And you would, you would, you would be amazed how many people in my church were friends with this respectable sin. I couldn't believe it. All these people were associating with them, and you didn't know it on the Sunday gathering. It'd kind of come out in personal counseling, and you'd realize, wait a minute, you're friends with him? I warned my church, don't befriend him. And brethren, it appears when brethren go through trials, this person's going to message them. He wants them to be self-focused. He wants to get their eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is his name? Yeah, self-pity. So I want to talk right now about Mr. Self-Pity. I want to talk to you about not having pity parties. Have any of you all ever had a pity party? You know the balloons, they start to get inflated. You try to get other people to join the party. If you're married, you try to get your spouse to join the party. This is a serious thing. This is an infamous person that we even find in the beginning of the Bible. We find Cain talking to Mr. Self-Pity. We find Elijah talking to Mr. Self-Pity. Think of this. In both verses, passages read this morning, self-pity was in those passages. Where was self-pity in the 1 Corinthians 12 passage? Well, yeah, and that's in, that's in the number 16. Sorry, in 1 Corinthians 12. But in number 16, yeah. They, they, they think that they should be something that they're not. They're angry at Moses because they've not been designed in a certain way. The same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. right? What did, what did Paul say? If the eye should say to the hand, you know, I'm not like that, then he, what's the person conclude? I'm of no use. You see, that's the response of self-pity. Self-pity looks at yourself and it thinks, I'm of no use. I, I'm of no ability to the body. But go ahead and turn to Luke 10. Luke 10 is where I want to look right now. We're going to look at verses 38 to 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So you got one person 
sitting at the feet of Christ, listening to his teaching. Don't, don't forget that. Right? That is the commendable example in the text. In contrast, verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving. So she, here she is. She's in the midst of serving. And look what she does. She went up to Him, the Him being the Lord, in the midst of Him pouring into Mary. She went up to Him and she said to Him, and catch these words, catch these words. First statement, Lord, do you not care? That's, that's very much a, a thing self-pity says. And who's she saying this to? The Lord Himself. Right? I mean, that's, the devil wants you to question the Lord's care for your soul. And here, you've got this happening, you could say, at a church gathering, so to speak. A Bible study is happening, and you've got someone there questioning the very... Rather than sitting and being fed by Christ, she's looking at the situation and saying, Lord, do you not care? And then she explains, do you not care that my sister, listen to this, left me. My sister has left me to serve... What's the next word? Alone. I'm all alone. No one else is helping me. It's just me serving all alone. And then what she say, the last thing she says, Jesus, tell her then to help me. Like, you know, she thinks she has the solution, right? Lord, this is the problem. I'm over here serving alone. My sister, I don't know why she's sitting down. and She's, she's committing the respectable sin of laziness. She's just sitting and listening to the teachings of Jesus, right? Kind of accuse your brethren of doing something that you're actually, you're the one with the log in your own eye. What does Christ say to her? Verse 41, But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled. I realize it's not the word self-pity, but that, that's the idea here. She is troubled about many things. And Christ says to her, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So you got Mary believing that... Who, who does she believe has wronged her in the text? What two people? Her sister and who else? And Christ. Right? My sister's wronged me. Christ has wronged me. The solution is... She, my sister should get up and serve, and she's actually telling this to Christ, all the while she is the one missing out. She's complaining to Christ. Mary didn't have to go to Christ. Right? What, what could have Mary's approach been? She could have, or she could have served uh, joyfully. Sorry, not Mary. Martha. Martha was distracted with much serving. Sorry about that. Martha could have just sat there and served without going to Christ, but no, she did not. And so let's, let's think here. What is self-pity? I see it here in this text specifically when Christ says you're anxious and troubled about many things. You've got a person troubled that they're left alone to serve on their own and they're missing out on the good portion of being satisfied in Jesus Christ. Right? They're bothered. They, they have a sense of sorrow that someone is not helping them and they believe that that individual should be helping them. So self-pity. What's pity? How would you define pity? 
Well, I mean pity in a good way. Right? We show pity and compassion to people. Say again? Yeah, compassion. Pity is showing compassion. Uh, you're moved with pity because of someone else's situation, right? So what's self-pity? It's not you're being moved with pity because of someone else's situation. It's you're wanting people to be moved with pity because of whose situation? Yourself. Right? You're wanting people to feel sorry for yourself because of the situation that you find yourself in. Uh, it's to be unhappy. Self-pity is it's being very self-absorbed. You're wanting others' attention about your own troubles. You can see it's very me-focused, right? She says there, uh, Lord, do you not tell her then to help me? Right? She's left me and tell her then to help me. So it's very much focused on herself. Uh, Urban Dictionary describes self-pity in this way. You believe that you are the victim who has done no wrong and is deserving of condolences from everyone else. Right? You see that? That's what Martha was wanting. I'm the victim of a lazy sister in the church who's not helping me in the kitchen. Lord Jesus, I deserve condolence and I deserve you to go rebuke that other lady so she could get up and help me. And what actually happens there? Who gets rebuked? Yeah. It's not, it, she had a log in her eye, right? She couldn't see things clearly. Self-pity, it leads you to respond sinfully. Self-pity is a protest against God's providence in your life. I mean, when you, brethren, when you face a trial, the devil wants you to have a pity party. He wants you to feel sorry for yourself. He doesn't want you to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to feel very, very sorry for yourself. Uh, John Piper, I love how he describes it. He says this, Boasting says, I deserve admiration because of how much I've achieved. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. And then he says this, self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy. The person appears to be needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. And the desire is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need for that self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is the response of unapplauded pride. I mean, you see that in Martha there? She's over there serving all by herself. Her sister's not helping. She draws attention to herself by coming to Christ. She doesn't want to serve alone. Christ doesn't actually recognize what she's doing. He actually rebukes her and lets her know this is not what you should be doing. Um, now you could say, well, what, what is self-pity ultimately rooted in? Yeah, pride, but bigger than that. It's kind of the common answer to the majority of sins in the Bible. Yeah, unbelief. It goes back to her words. Do you care for me? What's that deal with? Trusting the Lord. Lord, do you actually care for me? Self-pity comes out of a response of unbelief, out of not trusting God that He controls your every circumstance. Martha says, Lord, do you not care? 
she's questioning the Lord's care of her situation. She's basically saying, "The Lord, Lord, you're missing something here. There's something you're missing that I'm recognizing and I need you to see it. She's questioning Christ. We see this in, in Mark 4.38. Uh, Jesus was asleep on the boat and upon waking Him, they questioned His care of them and they said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? What was Jesus' response to them? Yeah, oh, you have little faith. Meaning their questioning of His care was an act of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Not trusting Him. I mean, do you guys believe Psalm 23? What, is it, what does verse 2 say? Yeah, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he goes on to say, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I mean, do you believe that or you do not believe that? And that word, surely goodness and mercy will follow, the word follow is pursue. It's the idea that goodness and mercy are hunting after you all the days of your life. If that's really true, where is there ever justifiable pity parties? Yeah, never. I mean, tell me one time you were justified to have a pity party and feel incredibly sorry about your circumstances, incredibly sorry about the trials that you've gone through, and have all these evil thoughts about other people not serving you as they should. I mean, when is that ever justifiable? It's not. You see, this really is a matter of faith. How much do I really believe the Lord? If I really believe that only goodness and mercy are following me, then whatever I'm going through, I've got to believe God's goodness is here. How would you respond if your husband was a missionary and he was suddenly killed and you found out that he was dead? Would you have a pity party? Maybe ask this way. Would you be tempted to feel sorry in the midst of your trial? Absolutely. Listen to this. This is an example from 60 years ago. Does anyone know the name uh, Barbara Udarian? Yeah, Barbara Udarian was the wife of one of the men who died with Jim Elliott in Ecuador. And listen to what she says. Her husband was 31 years of age when he was killed. And this is from page 206 in the, through the Gates of Splendor. She records this. Tonight the captain told us of his finding four bodies in the river. One had a t-shirt and blue jeans. Roger was the only one who wore those clothing. God gave me this verse two days earlier. Psalm 48, 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. As I came face to face with the news of my husband's death, my heart was filled with what? Praise. Sorry, this is a positive example of a response. My heart was filled with praise. He was worthy of his home going. Help me, Lord, to be both mummy and daddy. I wrote a letter to the mission family trying to explain the peace I have. And listen to what she says. I want to be free of self-pity. It is a tool of the devil to rot away a life. I am certain this is the perfect will of God. Brethren, this is a real woman facing a real trial. And this is not some edited response. This is her genuine response 
in the midst of this significant trial. Let me read that again. I want to be free of self-pity. It is a tool of Satan to rot away a life. I am sure that this is the perfect will of God. Many are going to say, why did Roger get mixed up with this? His real work was with the Javaros. My answer will be, because Roger came to do the will of Him that sent Him. The Lord has closed our hearts to grief and hysteria, and He has filled us with His perfect peace. What kept her from self-pity? What did she say? I'm certain this is what? The perfect will of God. That's always what it comes back to. She's basically saying, I am certain only goodness and mercy are following me even in the midst of my husband being killed. She has peace in the midst of the trial. I mean, think of the contrast here. Barbara has got to carry on as a wife and mother alone with no husband. Martha's got to carry on alone serving in the house with no one else. The woman with the lesser trial has the pity party. The woman with the more severe trial has perfect peace from the Lord. And if Mar you know what? The fact is, if Barbara Udarian was not certain this is the perfect will of God, if she didn't believe that God was sovereign, if she didn't believe, as that psalm says, that God is our guide forever and ever, He will be our guide even unto death, if she did not believe that, she would not have peace in the midst of that trial. You can't have peace in a trial if you don't believe the Lord is sovereignly in control over all things. It's impossible. You can't have peace in that. So this, this type of faith just soars above the muck of self-pity. And like she said, she didn't want to rot her life away in self-pity because of some trial. And brethren, you, you hear that. Think of, the, think of the minor things in your life where maybe you've wasted time having a pity party. Was it over losing a spouse? Might have been over losing a job. You got discouraged, you had a pity party. Now here the question is, did Barbara continue on with this confidence in Christ? Or was that just kind of an initial response to the trial? Yeah, I'm going to tell you in a second. Because you know what? It's one thing, again, it's kind of like the sermons we heard at the retreat that I was seeking to give. It's one thing to agree with these realities in the moment. It's one thing to express these realities in the moment. But it's another thing to go and live out the Word of God. Right? To be a doer and not a hearer only, deceiving yourself. And so I, I couldn't believe this when I ran into this. Um, it was very encouraging. But one of the other men who died was Steve Saint. And Steve Saint had a son, Nate Saint, who went on to create an uh, Ibex, I think it's called. And they make like planes for missionaries to use. And in 2012, he had a horrific injury where it basically paralyzed him. And so you got this guy who's basically paralyzed, laying on a hospital bed. And listen to what he says. I've got to learn how to walk again. I've got to learn how to move my fingers. Well, I'll tell you what. In these last six days, I've been in more pain than I ever imagined was possible. But you know what the amazing thing and encouraging thing to me is? That honestly, not one time have I wondered or wanted to ask God, why has this happened? And you know what impacted him? Barbara Udarian. Listen to what he says. You know, when we were interviewing Barbara for Beyond the Gates of Splendor, like this is like decades after her husband died. So we're seeing how she was. 
One of the guides I took down to the jungle said, Barbara, here you are, a young mother, a young wife. You had your whole life ahead of you. And then one day you find out your husband flew off with Nate Saint to try to make contact with another group of people and they killed him. Your whole life had changed. Then the guide said, I just got to know, Barbara, when you asked God why, what did he say? And Barbara's response, you know what her answer was? She said, well, I guess it never occurred to me to ask God why. And Saint said, I thought, how in the world do you get to that kind of point in life where you don't even ask God why, when your whole life turns upside down and you just trust the Lord in the midst of it? And then Nate Saint said this, and now look, it happened to me. I know that God has compassion on His people. Isn't that incredible? That's just a a testimony of a woman's life and her response in the midst of trials and avoiding a pity party. Brethren, do we have time to waste? Do, and do we have an hour where we can, just, we can afford to go out in the backyard and dig a big hole and sit in the hole and have a pity party and just feel sorry for ourselves about the trials that have happened and the things that are going on in our life? Do we have any time to waste? We don't. We want to be good stewards of our time. And so think, let's think for a moment. What are some ways that self-pity reveals itself so you can be on guard against it and not let it rot away your spiritual life? Uh, you know, I already, number one, I already mentioned this, but what, Martha, what does she do? She seeks to draw attention to her circumstances. Often when people are going to have a pity party, they want others involved. They want to get others' attention and explain to them how, that, how they've been wronged. And what does Jesus do to her? Jesus reproves her. Um, here Martha's complaining. My sister's left me. I mean, you guys maybe have had that in the church, right? Someone, someone else gets offended by another person. Then rather than go to the person who offended them, they, they might come to you. And they say, brother, did you know what he did to me? You know, feel sorry for me. Sergio, look what he did to me. You know, feel some, feel some compassion for me. Right? This is self-pity does. Self-pity, a second thing. Do you get upset when you're left alone? To serve alone? What if everyone leaves here today and it just so happens one of you is the last person here and there's some big mess you've got to clean up and just somehow no one else was here to help you? Would you have any sense of sorrow over the fact you're left alone? Often that's where Mr. Self-Pity is trying to speak to you. Mr. Self-Pity, he, he makes you think it's only worth serving if people are seeing you serve. A third thing. Do you have a pity party when you're left out of being invited somewhere? Who in the Bible had a pity party because they were left out of being invited somewhere? Sorry, who'd you say? Where at? Judas not getting into heaven. Yeah, sadly, in hell right now, he's got much more than a pity party. Yeah, eternal anguish. Yeah, and you don't want to be like Judas. You don't want to have sorrow in hell for all of an eternity because you heard the call of Christ and you rejected it. Think of the prodigal's brother. How did the prodigal's brother respond? Luke 15... He was angry and refused to go in to the celebration when his brother returned. 
I mean, isn't his brother returning an exciting time? Yeah? My brother's back. He's been gone so long. How did he respond? Was he excited about his brother coming back? No, not at all. Instead, he complained. And listen to his words. He complained about all the years of service. And he says this. He said, "How you've never given me a young goat. Me, me, me. You gave him that. What about me? That, that's self-pity, brethren. Well, they got exalted. They got blessed. They got this. They got that. Me, 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 me. Self-pity is all about self. It's all about self. You never gave me a young goat. That's, that's a pity party starting. He thinks he's been treated wrongly by his father. He's seeking to make everyone else feel bad and condemned about it. You know, I'm not going to go to the party. I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to try to manipulate you to feel bad for not giving me my own fattened calf. So I'm going to make you hurt by manipulating you through my response. I'm going to make you feel bad. I want you to come and follow after me and apologize to me. Even though you shouldn't be the one apologizing, I should be apologizing to you for manipulating you. I don't care. I want you to come after me. I want you to apologize to me. You need to come serve me, 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 me. A fourth thing, self-pity, it's, yeah, this is kind of repetitive. It's always demanding, right? Martha said, help me. The person in self-pity demands that others relieve them of their misery. They're requiring a change of circumstances rather than having a change in their own heart. They, they can't be content in their situation. They want to change. A fifth thing, are you always down on yourself? Let me, let me ask this. Do you get depressed? What I mean, if you, if you tell me, James, I've been depressed for the last three days, what's at the heart of that depression? What could be there? Yeah, it might be self-pity, but you know, in our culture, we like to use the word depressed because it's easier to get away with our sin by just saying we're depressed because that's kind of a vague term. What does it even mean? You might actually not be depressed. You might actually be having a self-pity party, but you're trying to recategorize it to make it all the more seem respectable. Again, this is false humility. It's pride. You say negative comments about yourself. You talk, oh, poor old me, poor old me. I mean, what do you want? A pat on the back? You want people to flatter you? You want people to, to praise you and say things to make you really feel good? Well, if you get that, how long can you live this Christian life on other people's affirmation of yourself? Is that going to be a lasting source of joy? Is people perpetually patting you on the back and making you feel good? No, that's not Christianity. It's being satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the person in self-pity, they want affirmation. And brethren, that's, there's an application there. Don't give the person in the pity party the wrong affirmation. Imagine if Jesus would not have responded to Martha in the way He did. That would have been incredibly unhelpful if Jesus would have went over there and told Mary, you need to go over there and you need to go help your sister. Right? Now who's actually getting negatively affected? Mary. And get this, guys. Christ protects Mary. That's kind of what pastors do too. 
when I see people in the church, their energy is just getting sucked out by someone over there having a pity party. They're now missing out on the one thing that's necessary. They're missing out on having more of Christ. You kind of shepherdly get involved in that and say, wait a minute, you're trying to get the person over here so they can not just waste their time, but they can grow. They can be fed. Um, kind of goes back to my sermon two nights ago on praying that the righteous person would rebuke you. Are you unable to take criticism? Are you unable to take criticism? Think about Cain in Genesis 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. How did Cain respond to the Lord having no regard to his offering? How did he respond? Anyone remember? Did he rejoice in his brother's sacrifice? Or his brother's offering being accepted? You know, praise the Lord. Abel, I'm so thankful that God was pleased with what you've done. I'm rejoicing with those who rejoice. Is that how he responded? Listen to this. Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Listen to this. Why has your face fallen? I mean, you guys have seen it, right? The person, they look really sad. And they might, they might not be having a pity party. You don't want to assume that about them. It might be a severe trial they're going through and they're trying to wrestle with. But sometimes that gloom look of sorrow on someone's face when they sit all alone in the corner over there, they're having a pity party. And you know what? We should try to help them to get out of it. To be there for them in a gracious way. Yeah, not to, not to beat them on the head and tell them, you know, you fool, why are you having a pity party? Um, and what happened shortly after Cain had a pity party? Goes and kills his brother. Wow. I thought, I thought the respectable sins were respectable because they didn't lead to really bad stuff. No, they can lead to really, really evil acts. Really evil acts. If a person having a pity party, they can't get sympathy from others, often in their pride, they want to retaliate. They want others to feel bad, so badly about their situation, so they manipulate other people with a false sense of guilt. Um, another thing here, how do, you, how do you respond when you have unmet expectations? A common way people respond when an expectation is not met is they have self-pity. They feel sorry about themselves. I mean, do you react by tanking into a pool of self-pity and feeling sorry for yourself? What happened to the servants in Matthew 20? They're laboring all day. What expectation did they have? Yeah, they're going to receive, I mean, you see the other guys coming and they're getting a certain amount and you're right away, you're making the assumption, hey, if they're getting paid that much, I'm going to get paid more. And how much did they get paid? The same. And how did they respond? Did they rejoice with those who got paid the same? No, they did not. It says in Matthew 20, 10, they thought they would receive more and they grumbled when they received less. And the Lord responds in verse 13. Listen to what He says. The Lord says to them, I am doing you no wrong. Again, who's their problem ultimately with? With God. Right? If you and I have a pity party, our ultimate problem is with God. That's our problem. 
Do you even see it like that? I mean, when you're in self-pity, it's hard to acknowledge the fact that you're having a fit like a child in the store against God. Your kids don't have any fits in the store, do they? Um, yeah, this, this kind of goes to the, the mess or the brief comment. Sorry, I'm sweating up here like a hog. Um, <laughs> this kind of goes to the, the brief comment I made about the midlife crisis at the retreat. Right? What's going to happen when you're 50 years old and the potential you thought you had as a Christian is not met? Are you going to have a pity party or are you going to trust God with His providence in your life? You've got to trust the Lord. You've got to trust the Lord. And then, yeah, listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 15. And the question is, are you content with God's design of your spiritual gifts? If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Right? So you're, you're designed as a member. The foot of the, you're the foot. Right? All members are necessary. And you're upset at God for not making you a hand. And how does, how does this person respond right here? They just conclude in self-pity. Oh, I don't belong. I don't fit in with this church. Because God didn't make me a certain way. I mean, who's their ultimate problem with? The Lord. Brethren, you guys fit in this church more than you realize. Part of it is just learning to be content with how God has designed you and where you're at and being faithful in that. Every one of you in this body is necessary to this body. None of you are unnecessary to the body. You all fit. If you ever have a sense, I don't feel like I belong in my local church, you know what the problem might be? You might not be trying to belong where God's designed you to belong. You might be wishing you were a different part of the body. But when we read that chapter, it says God designed you as He chose. If you're a foot, you can't become a hand. It's never going to happen. And you know what happens? Sometimes you're newly saved, and you know a foot and a hand, they kind of look similar, and you don't know what you are. And eventually you realize, oh, the guy we put as a hand in the body is actually a foot, and we need to get him in this right spot to be most fruitful for the kingdom. So a lot of people have self-pity there. They don't realize they're necessary. God, need, this church needs you. Um... In here, let's think for a moment about number 16. What happened to Korah in number 16? They rebelled wanting a different position. What happened? Did, did all of his family die? Does anyone know? They didn't all die. It says elsewhere, the sons of Korah did not die. And maybe just, just turn there real fast to Psalm 84. T Psalm 84. This, this is written by the great, great, great grandsons of Korah. If you look right there at the top, it says to the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. It's an incredible psalm. And you, you know, there's things you could wrongly read into it, but if you look, if you look down at verse 11, it's very striking what's being communicated there. They write this, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And listen to this. Listen to this. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. What does that remind you of number 16? What position did the Korites have? They were doorkeepers and servicing in the temple of God. 
and here their great, 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 great grandsons are at some point are writing, look at the statement they're saying. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Well, who is discontent with being a doorkeeper? Korah. What happened to Korah? He got consumed right into the earth. And then look at the next thing they say in verse 11. This is an incredible verse. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. You hear that? Korah's great-great relatives are able to say what he could never say. He could never say, no good thing does he withhold from me who walk uprightly. What did Korah in his rebellion think? He thought Moses, via the Lord, was withholding a good position from them. You see, brother, my point is this. It all goes back to believing the Lord. You've got to believe no good thing does He withhold from you. You've got to believe surely goodness and mercy are following me and hunting me and pursuing me all the days of my life. You've got to believe Romans 8.28 that for those who love God, all things are working together for good. You've got to believe these realities. This is going to, those truths will keep you from ever having a pity party ever again. It's looking and seeing the divine hand of God in everything. And then that creates a contentment in your heart where you're not fighting against the will of God and how He's designed you, but you're resigned to the will of God and how He's designed you and what He's allowing in your life. Um, turn to one more text. 1 Kings 21. Did you guys, was that thought from Psalm 84, did that come across? You guys get what I was trying to point out there? Yeah. Um, 1 Kings, what, 21? 1 Kings 21. Look at this. This is absolutely astonishing. You would, you would think we're reading about a five-year-old in a store right here. Now Naboth the Jezreelite, verse 1, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after, after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I might have it for a vegetable garden. Because it's near my house. I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Verse 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid I should give you the inheritance of my father's. Basically, you can't have it. I'm playing with the toy right now. You can't have the toy. How does he respond? Verse 4. Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And look what he did. He lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Now, can you believe that? I didn't get my way. <laughs> I just go lay in my bed and not eat food, make people feel bad about me. Give me attention. I deserve attention. I'm special. <laughs> scary stuff, brother, sister. This is scary stuff. Uh, vexed and sullen, the, the word it basically means bitter, angry, resentful, disturbed, agitated, unsettled, or it could be rendered depressed. I mean, it's, he's sunk, he's sullen over the fact he can't get the vineyard and he goes and lays on his bed and he doesn't eat food. It's absolutely astonishing. And you know, 
You know what could happen right here when the husband's doing that? Who's the first person who could really be good at helping the husband get out of the pity party? The wife. What did this man's wife do? You know what she did? She added fuel to the fire. And she basically created a plan by which they're going to basically get the guy killed and they're going to take the vineyard. His wife didn't help. Who was his wife? Jezebel. Jezebel was his wife. She didn't say to her husband, repent, get off, of, get off of that bed and go eat your bacon and go read your Bible. She didn't say any of that. She encouraged him to retaliate. She encouraged him to retaliate. Yeah, and spouses, you should have the discernment to recognize when your spouse has fallen into a pity party and you are the perfect means of, that the Lord can use to speak truth in them to pull them out of that pit before they've dug too deep. And you want to be aware of that. You should know the character of your spouse to recognize when they're going off into a pity party to pull them out of it, to help pull them out of it. So, I guess the last thing here, just I've kind of already emphasized it throughout, but what is the cure for self-pity? When the balloons are being inflated, when you're starting to invite people to the party, how do you stop the party from taking place? Again, it is not you look at the person and you just chew them out and say, quit feeling sorry for yourself. Right? Rather, think the positive. You go show them truths by which they should be excited about. Isn't that what Christ does with Martha? He points her to what she should be doing. One thing is necessary over there. Imitate your sister and sit and enjoy me, the Christ. Learn of my teaching. Don't be busy with overactivity and now you're hurt that no one else is helping you. And you saw it there in Luke 10. It mentioned that Martha was anxious and troubled about many things. You know what happens when you give in to self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself, sullen? You feel troubled about things. You get anxious about things. Why? Because your mind's not set on the Lord. What does Isaiah 26.3 say? He keeps him in perfect peace who feels sorry about himself and has a pity party all day. He keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And why is his mind stayed on thee? Because he trusts in thee. You get it? So reverse the verse. If you're trusting in the Lord, that leads your mind to be on the Lord, and then that produces a perfect peace. And trusting the Lord. That just goes back to believing Psalm 84.11. No good thing is He withheld. It goes back to believing Psalm 23, that only goodness and mercy are following me all the days of my life. I mean, if you believe that, which you can only believe that if you believe God is sovereign and in control of all things, that will lead and produce peace in your life. Um, bear with me. Remember this. There's, there's so many other principles you could get from Luke 10. But Christ is more impressed with Mary's lack of activity and sitting at Christ's feet than Mary's over, Martha's overactivity. I mean, brethren, you know, the psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. I mean, do you guys ever just sit still and feast on the Lord and think about Him and pray for His help? I mean, when you do that, this kind of goes back to just the question the other night. What does your prayer life look like? If you've got a secret prayer life where you're praying and committing things to the Lord, it's going to be easier to confront these trials and respond in a way that honors the Lord. Think about Christ. Did Christ ever have a pity party? 
When, when would have been the most vulnerable time to have a pity party if you were enduring all the exact same trials as Christ went through? Garden, the garden when all the disciples did what? Fell asleep and then they fled? Now imagine having a friend like Peter. Brother, I love you. I'll never deny you. I'm going to be with you to the bitter end. And what does Peter do? Gone. Kind of like Paul at the end of his life saying, all in Rome have deserted me. They all deserted Christ. How did Christ respond? How did He respond towards Peter? Prior to the denial, He's already expressing how He's going to respond when Peter denies Him. Praise for Him. Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. What a response! Someone denies you and you're actually praying for them that their faith not fail. What's self-pity want to do? Self-pity says when you find the guy after he's denied you, when you went downtown and evangelized and someone pulled a gun out and they looked around and they said, hey, are you guys with this guy right here? Oh no, we don't know who he is, right? And you get back to the, 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 the church meeting the next day and you go up to the brothers, what do you say to them? Do you say, you cowards, how dare you deny me out there? Or would you go up and say, brother, sister, you know what, I've been praying for you all night that your faith wouldn't fail. That's how Christ responded when people betrayed Him. Not a pity party. He had pity and compassion on them by praying for them. You want to not have a pity party ever again? Go show pity and compassion to other people and love them with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, again, just think of all the time wasted wallowing around in the mud of self-pity. And what happens when you have a pity party? Do things get better? They just get worse. Because you're grieving the Spirit again and again and again and again. It just gets worse and worse. What's the opposite of self-pity? Yeah, I, mean, I guess thinking just in the sense of rather than have a pity party, believe it's the perfect will of God and rejoice. Yeah, contentment. And if you're content, you will rejoice. You're going to be thankful with what God has given you. And Paul, you know what, what did Paul say about contentment in Philippians 4? Did he just get saved and he understood how to be content in all circumstances? He learned. You hear that? We're all learning how to not have pity parties. We're learning how to be content. We're learning how to believe this is the perfect will of God. We're learning how to trust the Lord. And if you don't know Christ, you know what's amazing about Christ? It says in Matthew 20, 34, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. And if you can't see Jesus Christ, if you're blinded by whatever, false religion, or you're, you're too young and you think you've got no need for Christ, Christ is the type of Christ who if you want pity, He will come and He will touch your eyes and He will give you sight to see. I, I just saw this quote the other day by John Flavel. Listen to this. Whatever God takes, be still thankful for what God leaves. It's kind of an interesting way to look at it. Whatever God takes, be thankful for what He leaves. Often we feel sorrowful for what He's taken. But we should look at all that God has left, all that God has given us, and have a sense of contentment and of thanks. So maybe here right at the end, let me ask you all a question. What are what are some truths, some reasons that if you're being tempted to have a pity party, deliver you out of that and you don't have a pity party? 
with some truth about Christ or some truth about our Lord that keep you from just feeling some sorrow over yourself and your circumstances. Say again? Yeah, He's faithful. What's a verse that speaks of His faithfulness? Man, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. What's another truth? Here, here you find a brother and sister this evening. They're just having, they're having a pity party. And I realize you try to figure out what, is, what do they specifically feel this pity party over? And you're trying to renew their mind and get them to think appropriately in the midst of that situation. Anyone have any other thoughts? He can sympathize. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, if Christ has been made in every respect like we are yet without sin, the writer says he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. I mean, you have one who will show you sympathy. You've got one who's going to show you compassion. And it's going to pull you out of that muck of self-pity, of sinful sorrow. Um, but I hope this is helpful, um, brethren. This is this is one of the respectable sins that early on as a Christian I really had to fight against. And I'm telling you, the way to fight it, like any sin, it's really about your view of God. It's really about who is Christ and what has Christ done. I mean, you don't battle sin by saying, I'm not going to have a pity party this week. That's, that is a miserable strategy. You strategize by beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. And as you look to Christ through the Word of God, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be changed from one degree of glory to the next. And you're going to see that God is faithful, that He is good. And you know what? We're all going to get to heaven and we're going to look back and at every trial we've had, we're going to see that God specifically designed that trial for us. Not to have us have a pity party, but for us to grow and become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, the whole Christian life, it's about perspective perspective. I mean, even maybe just to summarize on everything I've tried to share with you guys in this, this, these last few days, I mean, the first sermon about not rejoicing in ministry success, but in Christ, that's about perspective, right? You're keeping your perspective on the main thing and keeping it the main thing, right? The second message about keeping short accounts. What was the main motivating factor I expressed to you all about why you should always take pains to have a clear conscience? Yeah, or your relationship with Christ. Which, yeah, not falling away. It all comes hand to hand together. But your relationship with Christ. And what did we look at two nights ago about praying for righteous people to rebuke you and receiving it as the oil that it is? What's that all about? It's about not... Yeah, it's a kindness to make you more like Christ and not to grieve the Spirit where Christ isn't near you. You see, the same thing here. Self-pity will take you further from Christ. Not hearing rebuke will take you further away from Christ. Not keeping short accounts will take you further away from Christ. And rejoicing in your works and not in Christ will take you further away from Christ. You see, this is what this is all about. This is not about you know, little, little works and duties that I need to look at the duty. 
It's about you personally walking with Christ. And the overflow is going to be, you're going to want to have short accounts. You're not going to idolize your work in the ministry. You're going to want to receive rebukes, and you're not going to want to have a pity party. It's because I want nothing between my soul and the Savior. Let nothing between. You guys get the big perspective here? I don't, I don't want you to remember these sermons as don't have self-pity, receive rebuke. Like, Don't think of it that way. This is about your walk with Christ. It's about you and the Lord Jesus Christ and maintaining an intimacy with Him where there's nothing getting in, getting in the way of you and Him. You understand?